Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, I'm so glad that you made time today to take a listen to Pediatric Meltdown. And today we're going to be talking about COVID and mental health, the patients, the families, and your own. I know everyone is absolutely sick and tired of COVID, and it has impacted mental health of everyone. But I wanted to take some time to speak with a physician who's really done a lot of work in this area, and I hope that she can bring some ideas, strategies, and resources for you. Dr. Fan Tate is a pediatric neurologist with years of experience in child health and wellness, family-centered care in medical homes, children with special needs, healthcare delivery, and advocacy for children, families, and pediatricians. She earned a Bachelor of Sciences from the University of Alabama, her MD from the University of Kentucky Medical Center, and completed her pediatric residency and pediatric neurology fellowship at the University of Utah Medical Center. Dr. Tate is formerly the Chief Medical Officer of the American Academy of Pediatrics, where examples of her oversight included the Academy Equity Initiative, the development of policy for the AAP, pediatric leadership initiatives, and physician wellness and resilience in the context of physician wellness, she developed and led well, the Women's Wellness Equity and Leadership, which is a consortium of 10 medical organizations with scholars from each organization. For more than 10 years, Dr. Tate directed the Department of Child Health and Wellness, which included many of the strategic priorities of the Academy, Early Brain and Child Development, the Institute of Healthy Childhood Weight, Bright Futures, and the National Center on Early Childhood Health and Wellness, which addressed health in Head Start and child care. In addition, she led the Disaster Preparedness Advisory Council from its inception and continues to be actively involved in the National Climate Change Initiatives. I am so grateful for the work of Dr. Fan Tate at the American Academy of Pediatrics and so pleased that she had some time to spend with us today. Hey, Fan, how are you? I'm fine, Leah. Good morning. I'm so happy to be with you and to have some time to talk and visit. I'm so grateful to have you join me. I really appreciate it. And welcome to the podcast. I always start with guests talking a little bit about their journey into pediatrics. And then you had kind of an interesting um, journey. So maybe you could share. I, I did have to, to myself, it was interesting anyway, the changes that came along, not always anticipated, right, where we will end up in our career. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. I won't spend too much time on it. But so I, you know, I'm a pediatrician, of course, I'm a pediatric neurologist, so a child neurologist. And I, I, when I knew you might ask me this question, I really started thinking about, well, how was that journey? And what were some of the pivot points along the way? And so I, I have to go way back to when I became I, even a fellow in pediatric neurology. 
And I loved, loved, loved working with families and working with children and youth with special health care needs. My heart was there. And I learned early on, as most people, if not all people listening, know that every single time we see a patient, we're an advocate for that patient. And so I I tried to do that. I took that seriously and I tried to do it. And the, it's, it felt like to me, the more I tried sometimes, the harder it was <laughs> in the sense of how could I possibly get the resources for the children and families that they needed? Now, you know, in neurology and particularly children and youth with special health care needs, they may need OT or PT or speech language pathology or fill in the blank. There are great needs at school, right? All, all of those things. And just writing, everyone knows this, but just writing a prescription for OTPT or speech, <laughs> or please take care of this at school, that's, it just was not happening for so many of my patients. And so even though I knew and felt that I was an adv- advocate for each one, I really very quickly learned that there had to be advocacy within the system itself, right? Something had to change. I wasn't sure I knew how to change it. Obviously, I haven't changed the whole system. But I started looking at it and thinking, well, why isn't that working? So why can't we get it? So that led to discussions about healthcare and financing and collaboration with our partners. So OTPT Speech School, you know, that all of that. And so that that really led me to, to be working on that at the community and at the state level. I was at Utah, in Utah for many years, finished my residency and fellowship there. So I knew most of the pediatricians in Utah by the time you do finish your residency and fellowship in, an, in a state like Utah, I knew them all. And so we started working, to, they were working and I thought, I'm gonna be with them. I want to, I want to get in there. And I need to be a part of what they're doing. So I actually started getting involved with the chapter. So the American Academy of Pediatrics chapter. I, I watched what they were doing. I looked for opportunities to do a little something, right? To do, I, like so many of you, if not all of all of you, we're so busy, right? So it's it's not like that we can do it all at one time. And we'll talk maybe a little bit more about that when we talk about wellness. But, but there may be pieces of it that you can do. And so I started out small and um, just getting involved in some meetings, right? Just doing it. So um, looking at the legislature, seeing what they were doing, writing letters, writing letters, you know, asking questions, those kind of things. So without, So it's advocacy, right? That's advocacy. So I was doing that, getting a little more involved in the chapter, but not really. And, you know, I was a subspecialist. I, you know, I was involved and I loved working with everyone, but I wasn't as involved as I became. And here's here's the thing. I remember exactly when the person asked me and she was a GI, Pete's GI special. I remember where I was standing. I remember who she was and what she said. And she said, fan. You need to be more involved with the chapter. And she said, I want you to run for chapter president. I was taken aback, Leah. I was like, are you kidding me? 
you know, I'm not capable of that. I don't, I'm, oh no, oh no, there's so many other people who are so much better than I. And, and that's true. But she said, well, think about it. Just think about it. She said, I promise you it will change your life. Now that's a statement, right? I promise you it will change your life. And have mercy, it did. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I'm getting into maybe a little no, bit too much no. detail. <laughs> Honestly, I had a similar experience. I was you know, doing some mental health stuff locally. And then I called the chapter and said, you know, I want to be in the mental health committee. There wasn't one. So I start, I said, well, can I start one? And then I was committee of one. And then someone was supposed to be running for the vice, uh, for the, you know, president elect position Mm -hmm. and stepped out. And so they asked me, would you like that? I hadn't been on the board. And Mm -hmm. I said, are you sure? Really? And, you know, I was like, okay. And, you know, like you, I think for me, the, the real part when I really felt connected was going to the, to the leadership forum um, where all the vice presidents and, and presidents and leaders come together and make these not decisions, but, you know, agree on these resolutions. And it occurred to me then that anyone can move an idea Yes. From the grassroots to the top and make change happen. And plus you get to know a bunch of pediatricians and yes, pediatricians are lovely people. So I, I was in, I was in and it was like, how can I stay? In? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so exactly right. I ended up running, did not anticipate winning, did win. I don't know how, I don't know how, but did. And then Leah, just like you said, at that time, and in certain states, it's different, but we did two years of vice president, like you're talking about, two years of president, and two years of legislative. So it's a six-year commitment. And at the time, I thought, what have I done? But after I was <laughs> in there, after I was in there, I thought exactly what you thought, which is, I don't want to let this go. <laughs> this, is, this is wonderful. Decisions are being made to change the care of children and families and how, and pediatricians. And I want to be a little part of it. I want it's to be elect- part of it. It's electrifying, honestly. Oh, yeah. I cannot yeah. think of anything that has been as uplifting. Yes. Um, because I get to meet people like you who I would not have crossed paths with. Yes. So Same. so you're you're at the state level and then at some point, you are the chief medical officer of the American <laughs> Academy of Pediatrics. How did that happen? Okay. All right. I don't know, Leah. No, I'll tell <laughs> Don't you sometimes think, I don't really know. Exactly. I'm not sure. So I'll tell you a little bit. And then when, when it's time, Leah, you say, wrap it up. Okay. Fine. Oh, no, no, no. This is fun. <laughs> so, so, yes, I, I did my six years, right? I did. I, I was in then. But I was in on everything AAP, right? At the community, at the chapter, at the national level. And and so the next step for me in thinking about it was, wow, so how can I do more at the national level? And I wasn't thinking about chief medical officer. I was thinking about a committee, a council, a section. So I looked at the chapter and I was thinking, how do I get, how you, and I didn't know, maybe some of you on the phone, I'm sorry, on on the blog don't know, but how do you do that even? 
how do you even begin? And so I started asking around at the chapter, how do you do this? And so I ended up, because I had been at the, the chapter level and was a neurologist, little baby steps, right? They asked me to be over the Eddy advisory committee. So that got me. So newborn hearing screening advisory committee. So then you're kind of in one of those committees, right? A little bit. And and I got to chair that one. And then so much from an advocacy perspective, I applied and was fortunate enough to get into the committee on state government affairs. Because by that time, I was working with children and youth with special health care needs at the state level, uh, in addition to the university piece of it. So I was really fortunate. I I will say, however, if you apply and you don't get it the first time, do not give up. Oh, my goodness. And do not take it personally either, because uh, here's the good news. We have wonderful. I still say we, even though I'm, I'm retired as of a month from the academy, but the academy has wonderful people like you, Leah, and like like people who might be watching this. And so the those committees, they they it's hard sometimes to get on the committee. But so please don't give up. So you apply again, right? <laughs> if you don't make it the first time you apply again. Or you look for other ways. Or you come up through the leadership of a council or a section. And we I know we don't have time today to talk about all of that. But there are ways to get involved at at the national level. like So I did that. So I was involved in that. And because I'm a, a subspecialist, a neurologist, and I could see what was happening with, with children from an advocacy perspective within the medical home, I had started doing a whole lot on medical home because I wanted, how is it that as subspecialists, we can support the true medical home? So primary care, and, I mean, people used to tease me. They'd go to meetings and say, and count how many times I'd say the word medical home. I don't do that anymore, not because it isn't important, but because we've moved past that. So medical home was a big issue with me. And there was an opening for community and specialty pediatrics at the academy. And once again, I never thought I could get it or was good enough to do it. But so that's the imposter syndrome. We'll talk about, about that for all of us. But as it turned out, I had... Some of you may know Roger Sahita, whom I had known from Utah. And he said, just come, just come out and apply. Just come. I thought, okay. So I did. And I was so fortunate to be selected. So I that was so that was at the director level. And then that changed over time. And then then I became the chief medical officer a few years ago. Well, I know that you will be sorely missed. I mean, I oh. you're you're extraordinarily humble, but you've made so many so much impact and I'm sure you know, it's like you've built a legacy and also just work with these I I I too have worked with amazing people. For me, I went up through the National Nominating Committee. Yes. And yes. there you're looking at I mean, when we have to review resumes from these people that want to be president, Oh my good. I'm like, how do these people find time to sleep? Exactly. And, you know, so, you know, it's like the best and brightest and like, do I really belong here? But my, my shout out would be, yes, you do. Yes, you yes, do. She, and yes, my shout do. out too. Yes, you do. Don't doubt yourself. You don't have to be proud in the negative sense of pride, but you do have to have confidence in yourself 
that you can do it and you should do it and you want to do it, you know, and try. So thank you for your kind words. Thank no, you. no. Well, listen, we're going to pivot a little bit because okay. I want to talk about our 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 topic of the day, and that's talking about COVID-19. Oh, sigh. At some point, we won't be having to talk about this anymore, but right. and, and its impact on mental health. So both patients' mental health and our own. And I think everyone is exhausted. I mean, here we are at nearly two years, right? We're coming yes. up on March of yes. 2022. And, you know, when I wrote this, I wrote, there's no clear end in sight, but I recently saw a heat map of where the cases are and it's looking a little better. So, you know, the numbers are dropping and fingers crossed, yes. right? Fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. But it still has taken this enormous toll. I, I mean, I think people are still just kind of teetering. So, you know, my my first question to you is how do we best support kids and families that are dealing with the stress and strain and, you know, they don't have to have mental health disorders, but they have... No mental health, you know, challenges to their mental health and well-being. So where, where do you even start? Yeah. Thanks, Leah. So important, right? It is two years. When I'm thinking about it, it was two years ago in March where we started working from at the academy, where we started doing uh, home from work from home. So it's a, it's been a long, long haul. And that's working at the academy, not in the practices where you're dealing with this every single day and seeing the children and families and the pain and the fear and the suffering and the anger (laughs) and the loss. And you know what I mean? When I look at all of that, I am just, and the other thing I would say, and we can talk some about this or not, but it's not equally distributed either. So, all right. So let's think about let me let me give one reference here because it's really good. And Leah, anyone can go on the AAP website, put in COVID guidance, pop up guidance on mental health issues that children. It was just updated in December, this past December. It's good. It's really good. It's long. It's long. But you can pull pieces from it, right? You can, and it, and I started counting when I knew we were going to be talking about it. I went back, kind of took a look at it again. And there are like over 20 links within that guidance to resources, right? To data, to information. So take a look at that. I know we don't have time today to go through that, that whole thing, but there's a lot there. So it talks in the beginning. And I thought, what could I do? If we we're going to talk about this, could could I pull out just a few things there? And I think that that one of the things that I wanted to to go back to just for a second is we are at there are certain kids and families who are at a higher risk for mental health concerns, right? We know, you know it, we know it. There were health disparities before COVID, right? And I'm not going to preach about those. You you know, as pediatricians, we know that. As people who care for children, you know that. So there have been, I just made a, I just thought through my mind a list of some of those. Inadequate systems of family support, poor access. Leah, you've been such a leader in poor access or improved access to mental health services. Think about the economic impact, more on certain families than others. 
I'm from a very small community in Alabama. Look at the educational, what's happened from a rural health education piece of this. You know, the internet doesn't work in our little county very well. It works. We do have it. But it, you know what I'm saying. So it's all of those things. And if you start out with poverty or food insecurity or ACEs or social, you name them, the social determinants of health, that just, it just triples everything that we're, that we're talking about. So, so what are you going to do, right? Can you fix it? And I think if you take a look at the guidance, it gives a really good background and it gives some thoughts and ideas and some things not to forget. I guess I would, I would say just a couple of things, or we could spend more time on it. Ask when the families come in, and I know you do, but ask how they're doing and then wait for the answer. <laughs> and I know you're trying to see patients and people are lined up and it's COVID and they're sick. And I, you know what? I don't mean to be, I'm a neurologist. So you can say, yeah, well, you had an hour to see patients. And that is true. But ask. You still have to ask, how are you doing? What's happening in your family? When you read this guidance, you will see that. So asking and listening, screening, Leah, that's the other thing. So screen for depression, right? Screen for suicidal ideation, but also screen for food insecurity, right? Do you have enough food? I mean, if you're going to ask some things, do you have enough food? And ask about parental well-being, right? How are you? Whatever. If it's just one person, that's fine. Are you and your spouse or what, you know, fill in the blank, ask about that. I think I'm always thinking about the social drivers of health and we know what they are. So, so I'm not going to go back through this. I love this quote. I'm going to give this one quote from Carol Weitzman. You may, you may know Carol. Many of you may know Carol. Um, she's past chair of the section on DVPs. And she said something to me when we were thinking about the mental health of children, what would she do? She said, here's the quote, your conversation with a family member, and I put in parenthesis, our colleague, your conversation with a family member or colleague may be the lifeline they need. We don't know, but we do know that families still in the midst of all the the things that we're dealing with from the vaccines to school guidance to all of that, families still look to pediatricians. And so we are the lifelines, whether you want to be or not, we are. <laughs> so I want to just touch think, on, Leah? well, I want to touch on a couple of things. One is very poignant and timely. I, I did a, a podcast a few weeks ago with Dr. Kofi Essel from Washington, D.C. on food insecurity. And he said a really interesting thing. He said, we thought COVID was going to be the the great equalizer, that all of us were going to be affected. Like it didn't matter where you were, that everybody was at risk of getting COVID. Mm -hmm. But he said COVID was the great magnifier of the disparities. And I was like, wow, that's so smart. And then he also really, we spent a lot of time talking about asking about food insecurity. And Mm -hmm. honestly, it just wasn't something I was doing routinely. It wasn't part of my workflow. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. other um, really awesome person, I remember I I had the good fortune of meeting Vince Folletti, who was, you know, wrote, wrote, of course, the original ACEs report. And he said, the asking 
about ACEs is in and of itself therapeutic. And yes. I have forever remembered that, you know, when you ask someone, are you okay? And you, and mm -hmm. you want to listen that that in and of itself is, is meaningful. And, yes. and you're, you're saying the same thing. It may be the lifeline. You're acknowledging that I care enough about who you are as a person to want to know about you. Yes. And and I may or may not be able to to quote fix it, but I'm here with you. You know, I I want to hear about how you are. Yeah. Oh, if I may, I just want to key off of what you just said. So I it was my fortune to be a part of the National Academy of Medicine group that looked at resilience for two or three years, even before COVID, we were looking at well-being and resilience. They were, and so I was there. And I remember a, a presentation by a psychiatrist there who said, if you will just do this, they, they were talking about our colleagues, but they, this person said, ask how you're doing and wait three minutes before you make a comment back. That's a long just time. <laughs> it is. You mm -hmm. can nod, you can whatever, you can, but listen for three minutes. It's it's not so easy. We practice that because uh -uh. we're fixers, right? We want to say, oh, I know how, or, oh, have you thought about this? Or, oh, let me link you to this. You know, he said, don't try to fix it. And that's what I've heard so many times. I'm the same. It's kind of scary when you ask if you don't have an answer, right? We're not going to fix COVID. We're not going to fix fill in the blank. But we can show that we care. And so it's, it's something that's doable, right? And I, I love what you were saying. Well, and I looked at some of the work that you've done, and there was a great slide presentation. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And you talked about this idea of community synapses about our partners. <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? I love that. Well, okay. Thank you. You're a neurologist, that right? <laughs> and and that's one of the few that I actually pulled that up and filled in the blank. You know, <laughs> I had to do the synapses, the connections, right? As a neurologist, one of my favorite slides. Thank you for for acknowledging that. <laughs> so I think one of the things that that I've always felt, and maybe others have felt, is I just need to be able to fix it. Right? Here's a problem, and I'm going to fix it for these wonderful children and youth and families, right? Which is good. That's why we went into medicine to help others. I think I did, you did, we did. But the fact is, we're not going to fix it all. And so those synapses, if you look at that slide on, on, on my slide, that slide, I have families right in the middle where all the axons and dendrites are coming out from families because, listen, the team is with the family. This is not about us doing things to the family. It's about us doing things with the family, right? And making those decisions together about where the needs are and what might be most helpful. So I put, I always put families right in the center of that. So then we, you know, as pediatricians or as, as pediatric healthcare providers, we are always looking for links. I love those synapses. We're looking for links. So the families are in the middle and then fill in the blank around. Look at public health and what we're doing with respect to that. Look at agencies, so community agencies, maternal and child health, federal, governmental agencies. You know, what about Head Start? You know, what about child care? What about, you know, those kind of groups? 
you always, with, with children and youth, I think we always have to put education right there. How is it that we can link more and better to education? In my experience, they want to link with us and are looking Very for ways much. to do that. Don't you think, Leah? Oh, yeah. If I called a teacher, they were so excited that I called. And then, of course, you know, I would find all these missing pieces about why this kiddo wasn't doing well. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I just need to adjust their ADHD med. And yeah. the teacher is like, gosh, when you, you know, I, I can think of a kid in particular had to stop the medication because he was not maintaining his weight. And the teacher was like, what happened? This kid cannot function. So, you know, we had to go back to the drawing table, but I wouldn't have known that. I was relying on the parent who in her environment, he was struggling too, but it wasn't impacting his function as much as it was in the school setting. Well, I wouldn't have known. So, and, and it's so interesting, you know, when I started doing this podcast, I think I had it in my head, like what pediatricians want to know about mental health is about SSRIs and how to write prescriptions and mm-hmm. that sort of educational information. The more I've talked to, to folks, and I've been so fortunate to talk to some amazing individuals, it is so above and beyond that. Not yes. that that's not a piece of it. It's right. so much more about And I've heard it from the parents that I've interviewed too about being with the family, letting the family lead. What do you really need? And Paul Dworkin talked about it. It was so amazing. I was so excited talking to him. You know, his big ideas, big visions. And I'm like, what are the recommendations? It's like, figure out what the family wants. (laughs) And I'm like, really? (laughs) And when I've asked parents, you know, what do you need from doctors? You know, because you're thinking like this brilliance and, you know, super expertise. And she's like, the the parents have said, just listen, you know? So the advice is, could you sit down and just listen to me for a minute? Yes. You know, it's not like, they're not saying fix it. They're all saying, be be with me and figure out what I I need. I so agree. Think about, Leah, I often think about how many times, particularly when I was just starting out, I always, I hope I always did listen, but I listened better as I became more experienced. I just did. You you learned that. I learned that quickly, actually. But I think how many times did I write a prescription and explain the prescription if it was anti-seizure medicine or something? And not and not spend as much time listening to this is really scary and I think my child's going to die with this seizure. You know what I mean? It's that it's with them. It's being with them and listening. So I oh I so I so agree with that. So let me just throw in a couple more. I think faith based groups. We say it, but how do you do it? Because that's really boy in communities so important. All faiths, right? All faith based groups. And then I then I put in businesses. I just think we can do better working with businesses. It's not easy I'm, uh, because they have their own, you know, things going on. But they want their workers to to be their very best at work, and they want their workers' children to be well so they can be at work, and they want the families to succeed. And if they do all of that, then their business will be better too. I mean, it's. It's that I, I'd love to say it's it is because they care, but it's also because it's good. It's a good way to approach your business, too. So same with wellness from a from a physician perspective. Right. If physicians are well themselves, 
then I believe the care that they give is better. They don't leave the organizations. The quality is better. The the evaluations, if that's what you're wondering about, are better because you can listen to the families better. You know what I mean? If if you don't care about anything else, it's a good business <laughs> decision to this resilience and and well 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 being. I would rather call it well being than resilience because you'd like not to have to get to resilience. We do and we have to and we know it and particularly with COVID, lousy as we say in the South, lousy. The resilience is is obviously uh, critical. But you'd like not to have to get that. You'd like just to get to well-being so hard. Well, you you made the perfect pivot for me because that was my next next question was, you know, let's talk about pediatricians and other clinicians and start with, you know, this, this idea of moral insult, moral distress. You know, people are angry at Mm-hmm. the the pandemic people are angry period yes. with each other and yes. then they're angry at you know we thought that people loved us and trusted yeah. us and respected yeah. us and people yes. are people are mad they're saying yes. really ugly things and yes. you know so and we're tired you know and and yeah. we you know you have your own families and you know so so all of that what what is let's talk a little bit about sort of that moral injury yeah so thank you for bringing that up because, you know, like I said, before COVID, we were talking about burnout and we were starting to talk about moral injury or moral distress, you know, those kind of things. If you look at the literature, most of the literature still is starting to change, still talks about burnout. You know, X percentage of physicians have burnout. It could be as high as 76, 70 to 80 percent identify themselves as burned out. The problem with that, Leah, as we all know, the definition is vague on burnout, and it's not the same as mental illness. It's not the same as depression. And sometimes we get it all, all mixed up. The, the old, the old uh, definition of burnout was emotional exhaustion, replacement of the usual empathy with negativity and are emotionally numb, you know, those kind of things are a low, low sense of professional effectiveness, you know, those kind of things. So that's, that's, that's kind of burnout. So I really, I knew we were going to be talking about it. I went and looked at some definitions of moral distress. And so here's one definition. And I think all we need is one, uh, because I think it speaks of that. There's a Dr. Rebecca uh, Brendel, who's a psychiatrist and a member of the AMA Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs. And she said, When the kinds of decisions we are forced to make about care are the kind of care we are delivering, challenges our fundamental beliefs and commitments as medical professionals. That's what she says, moral distress. So you know the care you want to give. You know what you should be able to care, to give. You know that children and families are suffering, and yet we're not providing that care for many reasons. It's not, we personally aren't providing the care. So that, that's the pivot, right? With between burnout and moral distress or injury is a lot of people think of burnout. If you, you think about what I said, it's more like, well, I feel depressed. I feel numb. I feel this, right? If you think in my way of thinking about it, at least, if you think about moral injury, it's, I know what should be happening and I can't make it happen. 
Well, and and I can't do it, and partly because I'm being questioned about my integrity and my yes. my meaning. Like, you know, of course, there's vaccinations. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, what's the greatest public health, you know, invention ever has been vaccinations. It has right. saved millions and millions of lives. And, you know, case in point, here we are. And, and you know, it's not just a belief. I mean, there's there's evidence and data and yes. you know, millions of people that have had the vaccine safely and it, we know it protects us. And yet, you know, here we have this, you know, kind of, maybe it's not the complete solution, but we have this treatment uh, right. that would right. lift us all up. And yet there's so much fear and distrust. Right. And it's like how, you know, I, I thought about, you know, you know, my families that would call, you know, in the middle of the night about their child's temperature with 102 yes. because they wanted my reassurance. They're scared. Yes. And yet here in the face of all this, you know, it's like at the heart of what we do, you trusted right. me with your baby. How come you're not trusting me now? Exactly. I don't understand. Right. You know, what happened? It, it's almost disbelief, isn't it, Leah? I mean, because you, and it's hard. I'm just going to say it. If you look at the scientific basis of it, which we're supposed to be doing and interpreting to our families, right? If you don't believe that, and we believe it, but they may not. And I'm not being critical of them. They just don't anymore. And so I think the other, so I think there's anger, there's hurt, Mm, hurt, hurt, there's hurt, right? You're hurt, right? Yeah, you absolutely. Can't. I studied all these years. I'm I looking thought you at trusted me. I thought you, I thought trusted, you trusted me. me. Yeah. I thought I thought we were in this together. Yeah. The family piece of that, it's hurt. It's a little bit of anger, I think, at least sure. what we're hearing, right, Leah? Because this people don't have to be dying like this. Right. 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 You, it's one thing before we had the vaccines, and I'm not here to talk about vaccinations, I know, but but Think about how we feel when you don't have to be dying from this. It's still there. It's still horrible. It's still so infectious. It's all of those things, but people are still dying from it. So it's that. And I think the anger I have just heard, which you have too, Leah, I've heard of so many pediatricians going to school board hearings and just trying to explain why we're still talking about mask or why we're talking about vaccination or why we're talking about distancing and really having some hurtful, awful things said or done to them. And I will also say just to this moral injury is some people are afraid, right? Yeah, yeah. They're afraid. I heard someone say, you know, this, this is anecdotal, but Leah, you hear it being on the board and I heard it being at the academy. People, you know, change their clothes so they don't look like doctors before they go home. I mean, you know, there's some of that, some actual, some actual fear. Well, and you think about at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we were the angels, we were the heroes, you know, people were, you know, bestowing gifts of gratefulness. And it's like, yeah, it's just this crazy turn. So, so what do we do? How do we, how do you cope? How do you find self-preservation? I mean, I think we are kind of, 
wound up in self-sacrifice. I put my patients and families. And now how do I do that when you don't really want me to except sort of sometimes? I mean, if a child is injured or hurt or sick, I'm guessing they still want to come to the pediatrician, but like, you believe me for this, but you know, so there's that. So what do I do to protect myself so that I can keep doing what I love? Yeah. So no easy answer, of course. Uh, we would. <laughs> I thought you had it. I oh yeah, you had a well, prescription. I, I, I want to tell you ahead of time. I don't have it, but some ideas. Okay, let's just just a few, and these are just some of them are random, and some of the some something interesting just came out from the National Academy of Medicine. I want to tell you about that if we have enough, a little bit of time. So I guess I'd I'd I love your question about self sacrifice versus self-preservation. If I may, I want to just read a quote from one of the early career physicians. And I, I bet you people, let me just see if I can, this, this came from places and we don't have time, I'm sure to go through all that, but just so everyone knows, places is, stands for Pediatrician Life and Career Experience Study. So we've been looking at and doing surveys from three cohorts over the last 10 years, 2,700 pediatricians. So we know a lot about what pediatricians are facing and what the needs are. And when right when COVID first started, we sent out a places survey to the same group, and there's about an 80% response rate. And how and many this, people, how many people are surveyed? It's it's 2,700 that are part of the whole places. Okay. But there, but there are pieces, you send out different surveys at different times to different people. So I can't, but it's that many people that are involved in those surveys, different surveys. So, so we, we, and this is Dr. Lynn Olson and her team at the Academy who do such a wonderful job with this. They send out questions and right after COVID had started, they ask, what are you dealing with? Right. What are you dealing with? So two-thirds reported clinic visits were down, right? And what we know is they haven't all come back either, particularly the well child visits, right? And so that was one piece of it. The financial impact on their practice was another thing that they identified and knew. The financial impact on their family, their own family, the pediatrician's family. So that was significant. And 95% were concerned about the social and financial impact of COVID in their practice community. Leah, don't you love that? That in the midst of everything, all that they were dealing with, they being the pediatricians, they were concerned, almost 100%, were concerned about what was going on in their communities. Now, and this, just so you know, these are, this is primary care and subspecialty. So it's both, and it's actually members of the academy and some who aren't members of the academy. So it's a good group of people. So way back then, way back then, a third, and early on, a third had a colleague who had COVID. Now I have no idea what it would be, but I know it's significant. I mean, I, I, I won't guess, but we know it's, it's way on up there. But this is what, I just want to, to read one thing. Having to be a full-time physician, full-time mom, full-time teacher during our surge was unbelievable. She says, we did not have any childcare because people didn't want to babysit for a physician. Thankfully, my clinic was gracious and allowed me to bring the kids to work 
They even allowed me to decrease my clinical time for a short period. But here's the bottom line. I felt pulled in all directions and felt like I didn't do anything well. So that's that. I don't want to end on a net, you know, but that's what people are feeling, right? What in the world's going on? That's the re- that's a response to the question that you would ask families. How are you doing? And they're saying that. And I think even, you know, of course, pre-pandemic, and I was thinking about this a lot, you know, it's reflecting back over my career. You know, it is it has always been a challenge. You know, how do you how do you be yes. a pediatrician if you have children, a parent, you know, it's like how do you find hours in the day? Because it's yeah. You know, and then you throw in things like electronic medical records and and in basket messages. And for me, it's like dirty laundry. There's just always more. Oh, yeah. You know, it's never never, ending, right? You never, never, you think you get down on it and then you go, you hear the pinging coming back. (laughs) Right, right. It's just you, you can't ever put it aside. You go on vacation and you dread coming back. Yeah. You You pay for it, right? Exactly. So So, can can we make some changes? I think we can. I'm not sure it's easy, but I think we can. So I, I want to just comment just quickly I on the self-preservation. So you've heard this. People have heard this before. I'm sure I'm not the only one that thought about this. But this is how I think about self-preservation. It's like being on the airplane and you need oxygen. And what does it say? Put the mask on yourself first so you can put the mask on, on your child or others. So it's not being selfish. It's it's acknowledging that you have to be as well as you can be, right, in order to help others with this. So I think it's really important that you we not beat ourselves up over I should, the shoulds, right? I should be doing more. I, I'm letting someone down. You know what I mean? All of those negative things with us, which I, I would guess most of us are guilty of, I promise you, I'm always a lot harder on myself than I am on anyone else. I can definitely tell others what they should do. You should take some time off. Oh, you need to do this. Oh, you should do this. But for me, you know, it doesn't always work that way. So I think we have to have that internal uh, monitoring. And and what you could say or others can say back, I have it. And yet I have to keep going. So I understand that it's not so easy just to say, I can't do it right now. I get that because you don't want to hurt your fellow physicians or they need you or all of those things. But if you reach a point where you quit, you're not helping anyone. So I think the oxygen to yourself, whatever that is, whatever that is, and that's an individual thing, right? So that's one thing. But I have two other, I I love, I have to just quickly tell you this. The National Academy of Medicine came out, this was like last week, I believe, Leah, so it's it's called 2022, so hot off the presses, Healthcare Workforce Rescue Package, Rescue Package. So there are four areas, four actions that they come up with. It, it starts out by saying two years ago and two years into a global pandemic, healthcare team members are in crisis. Leaders are bombarded with competing messages, all of that. So here are their actions. I'm just going to read them. Go online. Under each one, there are three to four bulleted resources, okay? But I like some of these. These are non-normal times. Adjust expectations. (laughs) How about that? And what they say on this, here are top five actions 
to support team members now. And these can be initiated within three months, they say. And here are the links to the resources. So these are not normal times, adjust expectations like documentation protocols or, you know, what you can eliminate from the workflow or things like that. So you can read all about that. This I love. Get rid of stupid stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Leah, this is coming from the, the very prestigious, of course, National Academy of Medicine, and they put this out. Get rid of stupid stuff. I love it. I love it. So, Leah, what you just said, reduce EHR clicks for workflows, minimize inbox notifications, eliminate unnecessary requirements, you know, things like that. Get radical to shore up staffing. (laughs) Now, I don't know about this one, but it says send executives to the bedside. I'm not sure as an executive, if I've been out of practice, I would be very helpful, but I could do some things, but but that's what they're saying. Consider voluntary redeployment for non-clinical staff. So they have it. I'm not going through each one. Designate a well-being executive that's really looking at this. And then the last one, and again, take a look at this, y'all. EAP is not enough. Do more. So ensure adequate mental health care by providing quality mental health counseling, stand up a peer support program, offer psychological first aid training for people. So I just thought that that was great because it's very specific. You know, it's it's doable. It, they may not all be doable, but it's something because otherwise we're just saying, make it through, buck up, do your best, think balance, take time off. I believe in all of that. I, I agree with all of that. But it's not so easy, right? Well, and and it this speaks to, you know, this isn't just about me and somehow I'm at fault for, you know, if only I were a better person, I could do more. This is saying this is a systemic thing and it's going to take a system change in order to feel better. And no, I love I love to get rid of stupid stuff. (laughs) I'm going to have to look at I have to look at those bullet points. You will. You'll like it, I think. But I love that it came from them and it said, get rid of stupid stuff. Yeah, right. So, right. Any, so it's that it's that kind of thing. This this is not about us. Okay. And if if you can meditate and you can do yoga and you can do those things and it helps you, that's wonderful. So I'm not being negative about that, but you can't meditate out of COVID, right? And you can't meditate out. I, I please know that I'm not saying anything negative about meditation or, or those things critically important, but I'm responding to what you said, Leah. This is not that you're not good enough, right? If you could just work harder, better, faster, fill in the blank, if you could do that, that's not, that's not it. And that's uh, a very negative approach to to well-being and it, it turns on the person. This is about systems of care. So so that's what I like. Well, I, I love that. And I think that's a great place to kind of come to a close. And I will make sure, of course, that all these links are in the show notes. And uh-huh. so my final question for my guests, if you could go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident, what advice would you give yourself? Mm, thanks, Leah. Well, I, you know what? I, I would have to say, just in what we're talking about, is it's take care of yourself too. You know what? Too late when you're burned out or leaving medicine, right? 
So take care of yourself too, however you do that, with the system, with otherwise. So that's important. And then two, three more, just quickly. When you're so tired and you're ready to quit, and we've all been there, right? Oh, yeah. Remember, remember the great privilege of our profession of helping others. Not many people have that opportunity to help a family and to help a child. Who gets to do that? So that I like. And that cues into remembering why we went into medicine and trying to get back to the joy in that privilege. Okay, the last thing I would say is, and I have had a horrible time with this, and I talk to a lot of women physicians, but men too. Don't waste your time on that imposter syndrome. But because I can tell you, not everyone, and we know who wouldn't have the imposter syndrome, but, but many, many, many physicians have that. You are enough, right? You are enough. Just do your best. You don't have to do it alone. And as Paula Duncan taught me, I love Paula so much. She said, keep your eye on the North Star. And the North Star, that's children and families. Oh, that's that's lovely. Thank you so much. And I love the things that you said. And upcoming, I have a a podcast with Dr. Sanjeev Arora, who founded Project Echo. And I'm not going to I'm not going to say anything more other than a quote he gave me, which was the the path to happiness is serving others and mm-hmm. you know in in humility and but i also like what you're saying about you you have to you have to honor yourself i mean you can't serve others if you aren't present oh, you know right. so exactly. i and i can totally speak to imposter syndrome i think you know in in being in different aap positions like who am i to be mm-hmm on the board. Who am I to do a podcast? I mean, yeah. you know, I'm not an expert, right? <laughs> so, and it was so much so that I even, and you can't see it, but I even got a tattoo <laughs> with my daughter that says I am enough. So unfortunately, it's, oh, yeah, my it's, word. it's on my wrist. And nice. uh, unfortunately, it's a really crappy tattoo. <laughs> so it, I can't always read it. But I know what it says. So yes. Um, oh, you do. Others don't need to know. Oh, Leah, I love that. <laughs> you you are enough, and I, it's so hard for us to acknowledge that and realize it. And I'm I'm right there with with the worst or best of them. I I can really, I I've you know we are enough. We just just do our best. So well, thank you, and and yes, you are incredibly enough, and have a, a more than that. So no, no. Well, thank you and have a wonderful day. And I so appreciate your time today. This was really fun. It was fun and an honor. Thanks, Leah, for having me. I hope it didn't bore people. So, Oh, no. Take care. Bye. Bye -bye. Such a powerful conversation. And I just love this so much. So here are my takeaways. Number one, first of all, a huge thank you to Dr. Fan Tate for everything that she's done for pediatricians for the American Academy of Pediatrics, and for all the children and families she's cared for. Number two, let's start with advocacy for kids. Dr. Tate's advice, do a little something. Get involved in your chapter or a committee, council, or section. And any member can join a council or section, and you can apply for committee appointments. And her advice is, if you don't get selected for a committee appointment, don't be deterred. Keep trying. Number three, two years into the pandemic, we are all exhausted. We have faced fear, suffering, loss, and anger. And for many, the loss and suffering is not equally distributed. Number four, 
The AAP COVID Interim Guidance offers over 20 links to resources and guidance on mental health topics. So head to the aap.org webpage, and it is right at the top, and you can find all the interim guidance for all sorts of topics, plus links to the town halls, which are amazing. Number five, so who is at most risk for mental health difficulties during the pandemic? This, As you know, the disparities were there before the pandemic, and now they have just been magnified. You have all seen the impact on your families. I mean, there's problems with access to care. A lot of therapists are overwhelmed. And so where do you send these kids? The emergency rooms are overrun. There have been economic impacts on families, poverty, and other social determinants of health like food insecurity. What was already there just got worse. And both inner cities and rural areas have been disproportionately affected. In those rural areas, for example, think about broadband access. I mean, how do you do virtual school when you can't get Wi-Fi? Number six, so what can we offer families? First of all, ask, it is therapeutic. How are you? And then pause for the answer. That one is a hard one for me. Dr. Tate shared a quote from Carol Weitzman. Your conversation with family members, and Dr. Tate added, and colleagues, may be the lifeline they need. Number seven, screen for social determinants of health, depression, suicidal ideation, food insecurity, housing, and always ask about parent well-being. Number eight, don't go this alone. We are inherently fixers. I know I am, but consider the community synapses. I love that phrasing. Link to agencies, schools, faith-based communities, and even the business sector. Find the helpers. Number nine. And what about the helpers? Us. We signed up to help others, and that has often involved many sacrifices over many years. We felt trusted and needed. We felt helpful. Much of what is happening now feels like a world of hurt, distrust, anger, and sometimes even threats. So how do you keep going? Number 10, let's talk about moral injury, and I'm reading a definition. Moral injury, perpetrating, failing to prevent, bearing witness to, or learning about acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. We know how to help, but feel powerless to do so. And we're being caught between the oath we took, long years of training, and being unable to deliver the care that patients need. There are betrayals of trust, and that has been described as death by a thousand cuts. Number 11, what may follow is burnout. That constellation of symptoms, malaise, exhaustion, frustration, cynicism, numbness, and decreased productivity that saps energy and joy. Number 12, so what do you do? How do you remain hopeful? It's cliche, but it's the oxygen mask metaphor. We all know it. Take care of yourself first so you can take care of others. Self-preservation is not selfish. Number 13, Dr. Tate shared that the National Academy of Medicine published the 2022 Healthcare Workforce Rescue Package. And here are some of the key points. These are non-normal times. Adjust expectations. This one I love. Get rid of stupid stuff. Get radical to shore up staffing. Designate a well-being executive, or maybe in your office, a champion, and oversee all clinician well-being efforts. EAP, employer assistance programs or therapy provided by employers, 
is not enough. Do more. This might include peer support, mental health counseling, and mental health first aid for all leaders. Number 14, the pandemic has called, number 14, the pandemic has caused a myriad of messes. Decrease patient visits initially, decrease well-child visits, and that has even been hard to rebound with, you know, lapsed immunizations of all kinds, economic impact on our families, our communities, and maybe even ourselves. Many clinicians are trying to juggle being a full-time physician, clinician, a full-time parent, a full-time teacher, and it is coming apart at the seams. Number 15, be honest about what you can and cannot do. Take breaks, breathe, hold on to the incredible privilege of being a physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, nurse, healthcare worker, teacher, therapist. Your work really does matter and it binds society on the premise of our interdependence on one another. Number 16, you are enough always. Thank you so much. And I hope you'll check out some of the links. I'll put them all in the show notes. And, you know, hopefully this conversation was uplifting. It certainly was for me. Dr. Tate, you know, outlined some of the struggles, but also the hope that we have to hang on to. So as always, take care. If you would be so kind to rate and review the podcast, you can also, as always, check out the show notes, as I mentioned, and take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.